Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast, the podcast that takes a deeper look into why our favourite authors put pen to paper. On this week's episode, we're going to be catching up with a wonderful actress and brilliant author, Dawn French. And our very own Richard Allenson pops in to catch up with Stephen Fry about the third instalment in the Mythos trilogy. And to round it all off, of course, we'll be checking in with some of your favourite authors to find out just what inspires them to write the books we love. First up, though, oh, so lucky and such a joy to be joined by a blooming marvellous actor, comedian and writer. It's only Dawn French. Hooray! <laughs> Mexican way. I'm, I'm being my own posse. <laughs> <laughs> Clapping myself. Woo! Yeah! Like a massive narcissist. <laughs> Well, we are here to talk about your um, incredible book, Because of You. Um, uh, how have you been over the last few months in and out of lockdown? I, I have to say that I was watching your Graham Norton the other night and there was a stark contrast between your lockdown and Arsene Wenger's. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. My lockdown was mainly macaroni cheese, um, <laughs> if I'm honest, and baking blueberry muffins. That seemed to be what it was. And jigsaws, violent jigsaws. Um, I, I did, well, I thought that we, I would set up some jigsaws so that whole, the whole family could take part. Yeah. I didn't know that I was such a control freak that I can't bear for other people to take part in my jigsaw. There's something about the time you invest in it that you don't want someone else to come along and just lightly put a piece there that you've been looking for for two days. No, no, back off. Back off, please. Don't come anywhere near the jigsaw. Um, yeah. Has it made you? Uh, has, it, has this time made you more creative and more constructive uh, in your writing, or or less so? Um, well, do you know what was really lucky for me was that I was due to be writing the second draft of this book during those months anyway. So, in fact, my work days were exactly as they would have been, and I was very grateful for that because there was just a little drop of normality going on where I wasn't busy thinking, ah, everything's fallen away, what am I going to do? Um, although I could see the future looked a bit like that. There was a horrible day when I saw 18 months of future work just disappear off the edge of a cliff like yeah. so many people in the arts uh, but for those few months I was doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing and it and it, and it was a great comfort to be doing that. Uh, now uh, your this is your first novel in five years it, even yeah. though it's a traumatic read uh, but it's hopeful as well on so many levels it feels like you've had a lot of fun doing this I feel like you've, you, you've enjoyed it thoroughly I have. I have. Definitely I have. Um, and the only reason I hadn't written in those last five years is because I was busy, you know, doing a bit of TV. And I also, when I turned 60, I, I decided not to write fiction, but to write an interactive diary instead, to do something to just use my brain in a different way. So when I came back to, to writing fiction, I had thought of this idea years ago but wasn't sure if I was capable of pulling it off because uh, you will know that at the centre of this novel is a character who does something so unimaginably awful that it's hard to forgive um, but I that was my challenge is to see if I could portray this person that you uh, you want to dislike uh, but you have to like because she's just full of uh, uh, love and um, she's a complete radiator and she makes a massive mistake and then she pays the consequence of that mistake. 
It's, I mean, I, I, it caught, it's my own naivety and I hold my hands up to not having read one of your fiction books before. But That's I was, okay. And I don't know what I was ex- expecting because there's this like joyful front cover and this mop of gorgeous orange hair and then it slaps you about the face that first <laughs> few chapters. I was like, oh my God, what are you doing to me, girly? <laughs> um, like how, how much can you tell us about the plot? Because you, you really don't want to give too much away. I don't want to give too much away, but I can tell you that it starts with two very different women uh, giving birth on the same night at the turn of this century, um, and 90, 1999 into 2000. They, they both give birth to baby daughters. And uh, the next day, only one of them leaves the hospital with a baby daughter. And the baby daughter she leaves with, she has stolen from the other woman. So then the novel explores what happens in the next 18 years when that child grows up and what happens when that child is 18 and finds out that the person that she's always called mum is not her biological mum and she finds out what happened. And it's what happens when a family gets fractured like that. And it's also about, well, really, it's about belonging and Mm. identity and family and forgiveness. And it's about how mighty women are when it comes to those big themes. I have to say, I'd had a few gin and tonics on Friday night and I woke up feeling a little bit vulnerable and finished it. <laughs> oh, that- did you? And I literally had to sit in bed and howl for about half an hour and eat toast. It was like, I was just like, I can't get out of bed. <laughs> um, it's, it, it, does have, it does have a fairly challenging ending. There's a bit of a twist and... Um, let's just say that, you know, a big sacrifice is made and that's, and that's what women do. I, you know, I mean, I'm not saying men don't, but I'm writing very specifically about women in this book. Women are the main event and it, you know, really I I want to explore what that relationship is like between a mother and a daughter. Um, you know, I've been a daughter to a really amazing mother um, who I warred with quite a lot. We had our battles, but we always fought in the sure knowledge that there would be peace any minute now and there would always be forgiveness so you know I was able to flex my anger at my mum who took you know took the brunt of some of my anger in my teens for instance but then we became really good friends and I think you're supposed to have that kind of tearing otherwise if when you leave home and you leave your mother it would it would cause you to die of, of sorrow yeah. if you still were so connected in the way you are when you have little tiny daughters. You know, you, you've got to have these, this tearing. You, you've got to. Um, and I wanted to explore that because I've been, as I say, mothered by someone. And I've been, I am a mother. And it's uh, so my dog, my daughter's 17 now. So Edie's 17 and she's, you know, we, we're starting to get our first glimpses of what it's like without her in the house. And, 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 and yes, you, it is, it's gradual, but it is so necessary. It's so necessary. It um, you must've, I mean, Minnie, who is our, one of our central characters, it's, she's, she's, the, she's the baby that we first meet. Um, yes. We follow her growing into her late teens. She's a hugely, lovable character um you must have had great fun writing her yeah i did and what i gave myself the chance to do was to write uh, 
a, a young woman from naught to 18 yeah. and to watch her grow up and to watch her doubt herself, to watch where her confidence is, to watch where her insecurities are, to watch how she relates with her mother and how she is raised. And that's the point of the novel really is, you know, who are we? Are we who raises us? Are we who steps up for us? Are we who, whose blood is running in our, in our veins? Uh, uh, are we whose bones we have? I, I don't know. I haven't got the answers to this. Um, and in fact, I wanted to shake it up a little bit morally um, yeah. to see, to see. It is, it is, it is beautiful. It's so delicately balanced. It's a very difficult thing to attempt to do. And you you know, it is, they're really complicated characters, such a complicated path that they have to find and you've done it you've done it beautifully there's a gorgeous oh, thank you Emma you have it's it's amazing um and uh, there's there's a really beautiful um little uh, moment in it where uh, Minnie and her mum stand together in the mirror and she's having some crisis of confidence about image and um and I was like oh my god I have to like we have to pass this around this little bit has to be passed <laughs> around to everybody it's like if only I could have been that wise with my with my teenage daughter to have said those things have you you must have you know you must have written those bits and kind of gone yeah that works that's that's exactly what I mean yeah well this is my lived experience of my own mum and dad when I had my doubts about what I looked like and, you know, I've yeah. always been a fat girl. So, you know, I could have fallen into a pit of, of insecure despair very early on and no confidence. But when you've got parents who understand that, are honest with you and shore you up and give you the scaffolding, um, you know, that enables you to go forward with that kind of armour. And you don't ever, if, you, if your dad tells you you're beautiful and that he would... Uh, be so sad if anyone ever disrespected you mm. and that you deserve the best you you know you think okay actually it was very clever when my dad did that because I it made sure that I kept a lot of boys away actually because I thought hey not good enough um so you know I always thought I deserved the best treatment you know I I I always thought that and I was very grateful to my dad for that and to my mum. Yeah. And I've always tried with my own daughter to do what I can, although I'm only part of her life. She lives in a world like your daughter does, mm. where she's getting so many messages all the time. And she's also living in a world of social media that I did not live in. So I can't, I can't pass on any wisdom about how to deal with that really um because that's not my lived experience all i can do is try and just be one step behind her just you know in there with the scaffolding it's the scaffolding is the scaffolding is, is absolutely everything it really is the comedy in this this very difficult story is never too far away i wonder do you have to when you're writing serious stuff do you have to kind of you know manage that or is it instinctively always there I think that I write the best comedy when the situation is quite serious. I think that in my yeah. life, that has been my um, favourite moment. You know, I, I'm all for the levity when it's difficult. Um, and I think that's what happened <laughs> yeah. with my family. You know, if we got a little bit, I mean, my dad used to discipline me with a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of cheerful sarcasm. You know, my dad would say things like, oh, I think we all need to be quiet now because Dawn seems to be speaking the loudest. So <laughs> obviously Dawn needs lots of attention at the moment. You know, it would be like that. So you think, oh yeah, I'm showing off a bit. Yeah. Um, but it was all handled with fun and whatever. So, you know, I've tried to write characters in this book um, 
that puncture these very serious moments. Uh, like there's a, there's a detective inspector. Oh my god, in there. he's hilarious! I love. I him. hope he's hilarious, and he's got a kind of word wasps problem. You know, he's a <laughs> yeah. he's a malapropisms person. He just yes. says everything that's wrong at exactly the moment that he shouldn't do that. There's these two guys, and yeah, one, yeah. one is a kind of really good dad, and one is a not so great dad. And it's so it's beautiful. great to write somebody that's a giant ego fest uh, because you know you, I can flex my own muscles into that it's you know it's harder in a way to write the the good um moral morally centered characters even though they're a challenge than it is to write somebody like that that you think is an out and out twat <laughs> sorry you probably can't broadcast oh, that twit 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 yes twit <laughs> now uh, so a little bit about you as a writer and how you do this um do you uh, are you a planner do you have spreadsheets or are you um i'm just gonna go go with the flow and when the inspiration takes me i'll sit down and do two hours well what i do is i i have the idea um, and I have several ideas and I put them in my little head percolator and then I see which one stays with me. And in fact, this idea was with me a few years ago and I thought oh, it's too difficult. It's, you know, it's, I, I don't know if I can write this because it's tricky. Um, is it too serious? You know, all of those worries, but it stayed with me. It stayed with me. So it's like this book called me to dared me to write it. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to write this book. Then by the time I've done that thinking for a couple of years, I pretty much know what my story is. Um, I try to leave my mind open enough to have um, uh, a surprise ending, which this book has. You know, I try to let some things come to me. And if something occurs to me, I don't want to not go with it if, if it's yeah. a good idea, but I have a structure. And I have a notebook next to where I'm writing. And of course, I write everything with hand. Sorry to say I'm a Luddite. I, and, yeah, no, and just it's not. Do that. It's gorgeous. It's so well, lovely. It means I've got a lot of paper on my desk. So I'm not very kind to Forrest, but hey. Um, and I have a notebook next to me. And in that book, I write the family tree of the people that I'm writing about. I will write things that I know about them. I will, if I see pictures, I've got pictures of Minnie everywhere in that notebook oh, wow. because I kept seeing her in lots of different places including I once saw a character on Catfish you know that great show Catfish which I love I saw this girl with this wonderful she had a huge afro with the wonderful orange bit at the middle and I thought oh, that is that's Minnie's hair that's her hair so you know I cut that bit I took a picture of the television and I put that in my book and that goes alongside lots of other pictures and so I make a sort of collage if you like that's yeah. in a in a notebook like a scrapbook of the whole thing so that i can refer back and i put everyone's birth date and stuff so i know what age they are when such and such is happening i do that but i don't have um spreadsheets on the wall or the story written out in lots of post-its i don't do that i i rely on my editor to when it, the first draft has gone in she will tell me if i've tripped up with anything like that <laughs> And you, so you, 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 you write by, you write by hand, you mentioned there with a, with a pencil, I understand. With a pencil, yes. Is it a regular, yes. is it a regular HB or are you at the well, stage you of your... Well, do you know what? 
what is weird is that I, because friends of mine know that I write by pencil, I have been sent little pe packs of pencils. And I have many. I have little, um, are they called Red Wing? What are they called? Uh, pencils. I've got lots of little HB pencils. I like them to have a rubber on the end, if possible, be quite soft. I like that, but not so soft that, you, you know, that yeah. they make a mess on the page. So I use whatever anybody gives me. And I've got an electric pencil sharpener. Don't think I'm not <gasps> modern. I'm very modern. I've got a pencil sharpener, and I love that zzz, 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 all day. So that pencil's only about that big. Then that goes in the bin. And then we start another one. Mm. Um, but I love the look of my writing on the page. I like that. I like rubbing things out. I like reorganising it. And it does mean that I have to think it through before I commit it to the page yeah. a bit because I can't cut and paste it too easily. I mean, eventually somebody has to type it up for me before it goes <laughs> off to be a book. Although my dream is to write a whole book in my handwriting. I was, I was literally just thinking that that's got to be, that's got to be like the obvious thing to do. That would be I amazing. would love to do that. But whether Penguin will take that risk with me and whether anybody would want to read it, maybe I should do it so that you could choose the printed version oh. or the handwritten version. Uh, well, listen, um, I, this is, this is so gorgeous. Um, oh, and thank you. And just brilliant. The, the, the whole way that it wraps up Dawn is just absolutely brilliant. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, had big impact as a mum. And uh, so thank you. And it's lovely good, to see good. your face as well. Yeah, lovely to see your face. And you know, this book for me is, a, it's a love letter to my daughters, to my goddaughters, to my mother and to all mothers like you. Thank you very much. Love received. Oh, she is just amazing, isn't she? And Because of You is out right now. It's time to check in with Magic's very own Richard Allenson as he catches up with probably one of the smartest men in Britain, Stephen Fry. Nice to, nice to be with you. Uh, always a pleasure. I was going to give you a long highfalutin introduction, but actually you are one of the people who needs no introduction. Well, that's very good of you. Thank you. I... I, I, I... I bow before your decision not to. I do get very embarrassed. At least you haven't used uh, some of the usual descriptions of me. Renaissance man always makes me think I'm wearing tights. Um, and I'm not much for Renaissance man, to be honest. <laughs> I stick to a few things, but I'm very happy to be with you. Now, we've been asking a lot of our authors about how lockdown has been going for them. I hate that word lockdown, but, you know, the, the past year or so. Yeah. Yeah. Some have absolutely loved it and they've gone into lots of writing. Uh, some have found it very, very distracting. How How's it been for you? Um, I, I think I fall more into the first category. I mean, if I were offered a choice between enforced socialization and enforced seclusion, I would choose enforced seclusion, I think. Um, but, but nonetheless, it's not been altogether joyous, I, I, uh, but I have little to complain about compared to others. Um, I, I was thinking just uh, just the other day when it's very annoying when people say we're all in the same boat because we're not. We're all on the same sea, but we're in very different vessels and some are in very luxurious ones and some are in pretty leaky things, you know. And um, I've been in on the lucky side. I've, I've got a, a, a nice place in Norfolk in the country and uh, there's fresh air and I have a little audio booth so I can um, do, it's not where I am now, but but I can do um, audio books, for example, which I love doing. So I sit and read books and, and I can do you know, narrations for documentaries or bits of animation and things like that. So, so uh, as well as writing. So 
but what I really feel for, of course, there are other actors who, who who don't necessarily have that those particular strings to their bow, and who who are just absolutely at their wits' end, just, uh, and not just actors, but people in the performing arts generally, and in the hospitality business. You know, those are the things I most love in the real world, or always have good good food and conversation and and good entertainment, and uh, it, it's a grim thing uh, that they are so compromised by this this crisis and of course they don't get the sympathy because you know it's, everyone hates a lovey of course and uh, uh, a lot of us think we've all got it coming to us for being so sort of up ourselves but but in truth um what you know what, you only need water and bread to survive but in order to live you need wine and good food and similarly you don't need art and theater and entertainment and literature in order to 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 live and yet without them life is pretty damn thin and dull and and and, tedious. Dull. Yeah. and, and we may be in different vessels but the, the waters are choppy around here I they mean, sure are life traditionally writing's been a sort of a solitary pursuit is mm. it more of a is it more of an incentive to get on and do it Yes, I, I think it is. Uh, uh, though, of course, you know, writing is is a tricky business. Anybody who's ever tried it knows that you you can't do it every day necessarily. You've got to try every day. You sit down and do it every day. If you can write every day, um, someone said that makes you a hack. If you can't write every day, that makes you an artist. And of course, I'd rather be a hack than an artist. I'd like to. I like to get the work done. But but it, it's. Uh, I think the most important thing is not to judge oneself according to how one's responding to this crisis. There is no right way to to to, to respond. Uh, for some people, it is a. It's it's pretty miserable, and they mooch around in in. Uh, unwashed um, jogging pants or whatever and, and feel uh, at their wits end. Other people are up early and baking bread and um, exercising and, and, uh, and, you know, curse them, frankly, <laughs> because, because it, you know, you've got to be allowed to, allowed to find it difficult because it should be difficult. This is not how we have grown up to live. And so it's not surprising that it, it, it it can it can beat us up a bit and we can feel a bit bruised sometimes and sometimes when you're trying to get to sleep you know you think oh, really is this why couldn't i i'm supposed to tomorrow i will be better i will organize everything and then tomorrow comes and you're still slopping around and you know that's okay is all i'm saying is just let yourself off the hook yeah it's okay to be not okay and, and you've been very open about your mental health in the past, which has undoubtedly helped a lot of people. It was your openness as well. Yeah. Um, how have you been looking after yourself during the last few months? Well, um, uh, walks, uh, uh, you know, I know it's a, it's a cliche, but I think it's a cliche because it's, it's, it really is a truth that, that nature, uh, and particularly in the early months of lockdown, which was such a spectacular spring and early summer, um, bird song and watching the shoots break forth on the trees and just noticing the seasons and feeling part of the rhythm of nature is is immensely important and you've seen everybody you know all the admirable people the chris packhams and the david attenboroughs re reiterating that just how important it is to feel part of nature it's only if we feel part of nature that we'll even bother to do something about what we're what we're doing to the um, to, to the natural world. So I, I think it, it, that that's been a big help for me. Just just feeling that I belong to birdsong and and greenery, um, and uh, the fact 
that I'm lucky enough to live with my husband and that, you know, that's that companionship and that, that love and connectedness is, is a huge part of, 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 of helping one, you know, because you're not alone. And I, and in Norfolk where, where I, uh, where I have a house, um, my mother is not far away and my sister and my brother and their families. So, so um, again, family, um, crucial i think yeah uh, if you're lucky enough to get on with your family as i am <laughs> there is <laughs> that yes <laughs> not everybody does but i get on with mine i have to say quite the bubble i think uh, the reason you're here with the book club of course we better start talking about the book mm. this is the third of three in a trilogy was it always meant to be a trilogy no, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I mean, when I started, I thought I'll write a book on the Greek myths. And then the first book, which I called Mythos, was, you know, the birth of the gods and the birth of mankind and some of the early stories of the first sort of nymphs and first humans. Uh, it, it, it was there was so much to tell. I thought, well, I'll, I'll leave it there. And I, I won't have room for Perseus and, uh, you know, um, Jason and the Argonauts and uh, Hercules and Theseus and the Minotaur and all these other stories. So I, they came into a second book called Heroes. And then I realized there was all the joy of the Trojan War. And that's that's the third book is Troy. Um, uh, a city in lockdown, I should have uh, subtitled. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's much. I mean, it, it, it is almost the tale of our times uh, because yeah. there's dishonor and betrayal and love and lust and revenge and, 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 and much blood. Uh, and not only that, a thing that really shocked me when I reread, um, uh, most people will, will have heard of the Iliad by Homer, one of his yeah. two great, you know, masterpieces, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the Iliad, um, some people think it, it covers the Trojan War. Actually, it only covers a very few days of the Trojan War, at the sort of height of the uh, the great temper tantrum of Achilles. But um, indeed, it starts with the word rage, uh, and it's about the rage of Achilles, the fury, uh, his sense of betrayal from uh, you know Agamemnon, the general. Um, but what's interesting is that the thing that starts it all off is this plague. There's a, a, a disease sweeps through the Greek camps that are you know, planted outside the walls of Troy and have been trying to, to bring the city down for years and years and years and in the ninth year when the Iliad starts and there's this disease but the thing that really gave me a shock Richard was that um, it, the, the, the plague starts with the animals animals get sick and it jumps to human beings and I thought gosh the Greeks knew yeah. that the Greeks knew that that plagues begin with animals and it's it you know if you go back to the um, sort of paleoanthropology you know those wonderful books like um, Noah Yuval Harari's Sapiens you know those sort of books they they remind one that that when mankind you know the agricultural revolution began it was a deal with the devil we we, we got from the animals we got draft and pack animals to help us carry and pull and we got um, uh, livestock, pigs and goats and things for milk and cheese and leather. And, you know, it was a huge advantage, but the disadvantage was disease and, and smallpox and all kinds of, of diseases that have decimated our population seem to have come from animals. And it's so interesting to see that the Greeks, you know, just Homer pops that out. You know, Homer was uh, a long time ago. <laughs> you know, he was preliterate. He didn't... Uh, he didn't write uh, or read, as uh, you know, the, our best knowledge is, but 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 he was wise enough to have spotted, as his generations obviously were, that diseases come from animals, not pangolins and bats in in the Greek case. <laughs> no, no, and he could tell a good story. I mean, what sparked your interest in 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 the Greek myths? Because or were they myths? 
because I remember trudging through a lot of this stuff at school and it was seriously a trudge and it was hard work. This is a joy to read. This You make well, this you. storytelling so easy. And, and Well, that was sort of the point for me is that I was lucky in that I didn't find it a trudge and, and maybe I was just lucky in having good teachers in the same way that, you know, a, a lot of my friends found Shakespeare difficult because they thought it was, you know, taught in such a way as to make the heart sink. I was very lucky, you know, that Shakespeare was always fun for me, but Greek myths were always a joy. And I think it was actually not that they were taught particularly at school, they were mentioned. It was I had just the right books and my parents had in, in the house and I particularly loved the idea of, of the, what you might call the just-so stories, you know, why spiders spin webs, uh, which is the story of Arachne in, in, in Greek. You know, she was uh, a, a weaver and, and she dared challenge Athena, the, the goddess of handicraft and, and wisdom and other things. And she was either punished or rewarded, whichever way you look at the story, by being turned into a spider to weave for the rest of her life. And, I, and, and of course, the story of Narcissus and the, you know, uh, bending down into the water, staring at his own reflection and falling in love with himself and the gods <laughs> taking pity on him and turning him into a daffodil. And, and and I just loved this idea of these uh, these stories, and and um, that was as a boy. And I also I felt, you know, there was the school religion, there was chapel and hymn singing, and a very distant god who might have had a white beard, but who was certainly pretty tough on, and he saw everything, and he judged you, and he waved a finger and he was perfect and then the Greeks had these gods that were so much more like the world itself yes they were noble and majestic and beautiful as the world is but they were also capricious and mean and spiteful and jealous and lustful and inconsistent just as the world is and so I thought that the Greeks had it right you know if there are gods if there are divinities then they are like this world full of problems and difficulty and both attractive and dreadful um, because the world is attractive and dreadful, and I'm attractive and dreadful. <laughs> I dare say you are, Richard. <laughs> well, thank you. You're far too kind. But living through all that and reading that at such an early age, I'm, I'm wondering how much did living through that and getting all those inspirations um, inspire you to do what you do now? I think, you know, I sometimes look back and although I have welcomed new technology, you know, through the 80s and things I loved, I was, you know, I, I bought a, a, an Apple Macintosh in January 1984, along with my friend Douglas Adams. We were the first people to have a Mac yeah. in Europe, you know, and, and, and I loved all that technology. But I realized if I'd been born 20 years later, I, I think I'd be such a different person because I grew up in the countryside. My parents didn't really like television. So there was a television, but it was kept in more or less in a cupboard and only came out for moon landings and the you know royal weddings and the yes. death of Churchill and things like that. So for the rest of the time, there were books because both my parents were you know great readers and and my mother you know was a historian, my father a physicist. So there were all kinds of different books around, and I was also slightly. Well, quite, quite severely, um, insomniac as a teenager. I had, you know, asthma and um, uh, breathing problems in the summer in particular, and coughs and things, and I was very sort of itchy and sweaty and miserable most of the time. So all I could do was read. Uh, that's all I had. And I say all, I mean, it's the most wonderful thing because I just buried myself in books. So I, I, 
to me, you know, I could read three books a night, literally. I mean, that sounds crazy, but I, I really got to race through them. And I loved them. And I fell in love with so many different types of reading. Um, so, I, you know, I had a jag on, you know, P.G. Woodhouse or something. I'd read lots of P.G. Woodhouse. And so I'd read a, a Jeeves book in the from, you know, nine till midnight. And then from midnight till two, read a book of Greek myths. And from, you know, from two till four, when I managed to get to sleep, I'd be reading, I don't know, a, a, an adventure story or, or, or a Dickens or something, or trying to work my way through Dickens and as, as a young boy. And, and it just was the way I passed my time was, was books. Because if I wake up in the middle of the night, the one thing that sends me back to sleep is reading. Maybe I'm just wired wrong. No, it is. It is mean. I'm like that now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm afraid a few pages and <laughs> I'm down. But in but as a teenager, um, as I say, with this slight insomnia, I could I just read and read and read. And uh, and I I bless the fact for that because if I'd had a computer and I'd had, or I had a television in my bedroom, um, or, you know, I I would have gone for those. And I'm not saying I would necessarily that you know I'm not saying you reading makes you a perfect person or anything like that but it gave me an appetite for language and stories that is very particular I think and I'm very grateful for that and what's interesting is to a whole new generation of not readers necessarily but certainly listeners you are the voice of one of the biggest book series in the modern history Harry Potter and you're also the patron of the audiobook charity Listening Books Mm. how how did you get into that what lies behind your passion for it it's funny because you know I, I'm I when I was about seventeen and I was uh, on the run <laughs> as a youth I'd run away from home and I was uh, I actually applied to uh, a group that provided uh, listening books for the blind in those days that's sort of almost all there was in terms of audiobooks there was a company called Kaidmon which had been the first to to produce anything close to an audiobook uh, uh, when they had got uh, the poems of Dylan Thomas, read by Dylan Thomas, yeah, Charles Christmas in Wales and a few other things. He, he, uh, I think he started with Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night and he read them. And Joe Kaidmon and, and then a few others. And I used to listen to them and I heard T.S. Uh, Eliot reading his poems and things like that. And I thought, I'd like to do that. Maybe, and because and, I thought I can't be an actor because I'm too ugly and peculiar. And and uh, but I could I could just be someone who reads books. And so I've always had it in my head because I used to love reading to my sister, who's seven years younger than me. So when she was a just a little tiny little girl, I used to read her stories, uh, and and I just enjoyed it. It it, it just gave me pleasure kind of warmth and so as slowly in the 80s and 90s as audiobooks began to grow they were all cassettes of course I started to do a few the first one I did was a Tom Sharp book I remember and it was a disaster because I'd 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 I suddenly discovered as I was halfway through it that I'd I'd muddled up there was a colonel and a major and I gave one of them this rather sort of voice like that, and sort of rather slow voice. And the other one is a little barking voice. And I thought the one I gave the barking voice died very early on. And it was the other way around. So I had to do this voice. I had, I had, my throat was bleeding by the end of it. Um, so I, I, <laughs> I, that's not a mistake I've made again, or tried not to. But when, yeah, when, when my agent said, oh, there's a, children, a new children's book uh, that they'd like me to read, and it's called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, I, I read it and thought, gosh, it's, it's quite big for a children's book. It's you know, full adult length, but isn't it? Yeah. And it's the only book she'd written. So, you know, it wasn't a phenom at the time at all. And I met her and she was 
wonderful and we got on very well and I read the book and she then said I've, I've written a second one actually and I said good for you <laughs> I, I like to think I wasn't quite that patronizing but you know I, I you know I basically said oh good that's great well well let's hope that uh, that does well as you know and of course it that they started to win awards and um, get known about by the third and fourth one suddenly everybody was talking about these books and uh, she'd done her american tour and so on and uh, i realized i was you know um in the in the teeth of an extraordinary hurricane of of, of literary phenomenus yeah, that, that, that's where the phenom comes in you, you must get the occasional phone call that oh by the way i've got something else for you to read well, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it, but yes, there is um, uh, a, a new uh, J.K. Rowling children's book, and it, it is possible that I might be the person whose voice you hear when it uh, when it is released as an audio. Yes, then come on. Yes. <laughs> now we love to discover this about some of our authors because you're no stranger to writing, so this is especially interesting. Because how do you? How is your writing day? How do you sit down and start? Do you plan it out? Is there it's a good. Yeah. Um, that you fill in. I, I was quite inspired when I heard an interview on the radio repeated uh, with Graham Greene. And he said that he was down in Antibes, I think, where he lived. And he would write his 1,200 or 1,400 words every day. That was his thing. Um, and he said, I always leave the last sentence that I write in a writing morning unfinished so that the next day I have something to do straight away. Because part of the problem is when you come to face your screen or your piece of paper is a feeling of, oh my goodness, what am I, how do I start? You know, to get the juices, the writing, to prime the pump. And if you've got a sentence that's unfinished, then, so I use that technique. I think it's very good. And otherwise, um, yep, cup of coffee, sit in front of the computer very early. I'm, I'm, you know, as most people uh, discover as they as they mature, you are either a lark or a wren in this world. Yeah. You're either someone. No, I didn't mean a wren. I mean a, an owl. owl. That's it. <laughs> a lark or an owl. I, I was confused yes, as well. Thinking, yes, this is I was confusing it with the awful Royal Navy joke: "Up with the lark, to bed with the wren." Um, it was. <laughs> I meant you're either a lark or an owl, and I'm a lark. I'm I'm an early morning person, and I I mean when I'm writing a book, it's five in the morning. Um, yeah. Uh, and earlier, I mean, literally, I just can't wait. I, I, the morning is when my all my brain is working at its best. And other people are quite the opposite. They have to wait till dark or when their children have gone to bed or, you know, if they're a family person. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you discover, basically. Not everyone's different. But for me, it's early morning. And it's just getting to it. It's just not stopping. So if you run out of inspiration, keep writing. And, and you may write drivel, um, but it's at least it's it's a wadge of plasticine that you can then shape, you know. Whereas if you just stop and and pace up and down, and say I can't write, then nothing. There's nothing to reshape. There's nothing to to rescue. So I think it's well worth putting words down, even if they're nonsense. Well, it seems and, well, as well as reading Troy, especially because you know we know how it ends. But it's like yeah. the, words, the words come tumbling out. It's not like you've got to drag them kicking and screaming onto the page. No, I, I, that's true. And, and of course, I, that's another thing you have to decide if you're a writer. I mean, it's, it, it's 
it's not an absolute hard and fast rule, but Cyril Connolly, who was a great uh, literary critic and, and uh, finder of new writers in, of the mid 20th century, wrote a book called The Enemies of Promise, in which the, the first half is a, he describes two forms of writing. He calls one, he calls them Mandarin and non-Mandarin. By Mandarin, he means writing that's ornate and flowing and full of juice and life and words and description and decoration. Um, and then non-Mandarin, he's describing the new school of writing that was coming especially from America, and you might say uh, kind of headlined by Ernest Hemingway, a writing that's very spare, that takes words out, that leaves a kind of skeletal um, framework of language so that you don't hear the writer, you don't hear the writer at all. It's just a, um, and that's, that's the writing that works best for thrillers. You know, if you read um, Lee Child, you know, that those kind of books are perfect Hemingway prose. There, there's no adjectives almost. There's no description. Everything is lean and spare. And I wish I could write like that because very often it's a beautiful way of writing. And it really works. But I, I realise that I am someone who I just can't help but celebrate the profuseness uh, of language. I, I am, as I think um, Benjamin Disraeli described a fellow parliamentarian, uh, um, inebriated with the exuberance of my own verbosity. <laughs> and, and, and I just love words. And so I love finding new ones and putting them together in new ways. And, and sometimes um, it's a bit like in, in painting that there is, the, I think of the two V's, you know, both from the lowlands, both both Netherlandish, Vermeer and Van Gogh, both, you know, amongst the most prized artists who ever lived. You know, their their works, you know, if if they were to sell, would would sell for hundreds of millions now, of course. Um, and one of them, Vermeer, disappears from his work. You don't see a single brushstroke. It's just a perfect surface of, you just see the light and, and the world that he's painting. He has disappeared from it. Van Gogh is the opposite. I mean, in one of his paintings, there's even a grasshopper caught in the paint and, and the thickness of the brushstroke. You can almost hear him sweating and grunting as he paints. And you see these two aesthetics in, in painting and you see them in writing. Sometimes you hear the squeak of the writer's nib on the page, as it were, and in others, they've disappeared. And it's also the same with performers. I, I think of that, my two, you know, two of the most wonderful people I ever worked with in the comedy sphere were, were Rowan Atkinson and Rick Mail. And, and, and Rowan is like a Vermeer, he disappears. He, this other character, uh, you know, the suavity of a Blackadder is so different from, oh, Mr. Bean, um, whereas Rick was, Lick! He was just lick in this huge way, uh, a kind of giant version of himself in whatever he did. And it's not that one was right and one was wrong. They're just, one's a Van Gogh and one's a Vermeer. They're both magnificent. To have both is fabulous. And it's the same with writing. I think most writers have to decide if they're the kind of writer who joys in language or the kind of writer who wants language to become an invisible thing that 
that, that the story operates somehow almost despite the language. And um, hugely engaging and, and, and nourishing in a way as well. It's a bit like, you know, menus in a restaurant. You don't, you, 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 some restaurants, you don't want to eat anything. Others, <laughs> you could eat absolutely anything. <laughs> so true. But I think one of the best notes about writing, because I know everyone is very interested in process, but it, it's a thing that might help people although it sounds very grim, is what Thomas Mann said. Thomas Mann said, a writer is just a person who finds writing more difficult than ordinary people do. And you think, well, hang on, <laughs> how can that make sense? Well, but I think because writing is so difficult, most people who have, who've made the decision, I'm going to write a novel, they say, I've had a good idea, and they'll write the first chapter and it'll come streaming out of them because they've been thinking about it for, for months and weeks or possibly years. And, and then they get stuck. And because they get stuck, they think they're not a writer. They think, oh, this is too difficult. But that's when a writer goes, no, <laughs> if it's difficult, then I know it must be right because a writer understands how hard it is and works through it doesn't give up but most people give up because they don't know how hard it is to write they assume that because they're finding it hard they can't be a writer whereas in fact they should say ah i'm finding it hard it should be hard that means i'm on the right track do you see what i mean it's a kind of not quite a paradox but it's you said, if, you're not, if, if you're not finding it difficult you're not doing it right yeah, but yes, exactly. You put it much better. <laughs> Troy by Stephen Fry is the third in the trilogy. This, I suspect there might be a fourth. This might end up with a quartet or a quintet. Or Yes, I think a, a tetralogy, a four, a foursome, or as Douglas Adams would say, a trilogy in five parts in his case. But, um, uh, yes, th there is the homecoming. There's Odysseus and Agamemnon and Menelaus and uh, all the others uh, at the end of the uh, Trojan War have to go home. Obviously, the most famous homecoming is uh, Odysseus. Is it's the Odyssey? It's a word we use all the time. So that you know, and that's a wonderful story, a series of adventures. And so I'm looking forward to that. That's the way I'll pinch the loaf, as it were. Amazing, absolutely brilliant. That was Richard Allenson and Stephen Fry. Now, I'm sure that you've been diving back into your favourite novels over the past few months, especially now when we've got a little bit more time to get stuck in. I still haven't finished The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Don't Say a Word by Agatha Christie, but I think it could be the beginning of a lifelong love affair with Agatha Christie. So if you've ever wondered what inspires the authors behind your favourites, well, we asked the brilliant Anthony Horowitz what his writing requirements are. I always listen to Philip Glass when I'm writing. He's a minimalist composer and I love his music. Uh, but the best thing about it is that it's very simple. It's almost atonal. You don't have to concentrate on it too much. It's sort of background noise and there are no words. I can't have words when I'm writing. I suppose my only real ritual is that every morning I choose the fountain pen I'm going to write with. I love writing with a fountain pen rather than with a computer, first draft, and so I would pick the pen, and I suppose that is my only ritual. I start at about eight in the morning, sometimes earlier, and I can work through until five, six, seven, even work after dinner as well, so 10 hours a day, and, and I'm pretty, I hope I, 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 you know, there are no ups and downs. Um, I, I um, just, just enjoy writing all the time. The soft drink, which I, which I have during the day, uh, obviously, is green tea. I drink lots and lots of green tea. Uh, and probably that, that, just going up and down to the kitchen also sort of gives me a little break from the work. The alcoholic drink at the end of the day, 6.30, to reward myself for, for all that writing, 
Oh, a gin and tonic, probably, yeah, would have to be that. All my books. The first person to read it is my wife, Jill Green. She's a producer. She produced Foil's War, which took me 16 years of writing. We worked together for 25 years. Um, and she is a pretty ruthless uh, critic, I have to be honest with you, um, and doesn't let me off lightly. But the good thing is she never guesses the ending, and I hope you, you don't either. And that's all we've got time for this week on the Magic Book Club podcast. Join us next time for more of your favourite authors and stories. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading.